Acts chapter 5, we'll be looking in review at a couple of the chapters before this, but uh, looking at the latter half of Acts 5 today, we all know what it is like to live under the influence of an intangible force or an unseen reality. Some children at this time of year are known to be influenced by the anticipation of Christmas, a pending reality that influences attitudes and actions very directly. Sometimes it affects parents a little differently, but it has its own influence there as well. Maybe it's an approaching wedding day. Think of a couple that's excited about that day coming. It influences the way that they handle life and view everything. Or think of the influence of an abusive parent. That can affect someone until the parents are long dead. It may be the anticipation of emancipation, or it may be the slavery of a disappointing personal failure. Maybe one of the most clear evidences of being under the influence of an intangible force, an unseen reality, is the ambassador. His homeland is unseen, and yet it has a direct influence upon every decision he makes and every activity that he pursues on that foreign soil. Indeed, the ambassador's duty is to represent the interests of his nation in the host country. He even enjoys diplomatic immunity from the laws of the land in which he resides. Does that mean that he's free from law? Not at all. He operates in that foreign country under the laws of his homeland. So at every level of life, the ambassador is influenced by the reality and by the power of his unseen homeland. It's for good reason that the New Testament refers to Christians as ambassadors for Christ. We live in this world as resident aliens under the authority of a kingdom that is, to quote Jesus, not of this world. Jesus Christ, who purchased us with his blood and who reigns in victory from heaven's throne, is our sovereign king in this world, here. But we must recognize that we live in this world as ambassadors for Christ amidst nations that see their kingdom as supreme, not his. In fact, amidst many people who do not see his kingdom at all. We live among kingdoms that do not recognize our, if we could use the word, diplomatic immunity as citizens of heaven. And where that is the case, there are clashes. In his classic work, The City of God, the 4th century Bishop Augustine spoke of two cities by which he meant two peoples or two societies or two kingdoms. And he said in a classic Line speaking of the coexistence of these two. These two cities were created by two loves. The earthly city by the love of self unto the contempt of God. And the heavenly city by the love of God unto the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself. The latter, in the Lord. And so we would say the kingdom of man operates under the influence of its earthly, self-promoting glory, while those who serve the kingdom of God operate under the influence of the Spirit. There is the raging of the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman through whom Messiah will come. There are those who operate under this earth's kingdom, led by the Lord of this earth, Satan. 
And there are those who live under the Lord of this universe and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when these two trajectories meet, there will be inevitable clashes. And when these clashes occur, we learn the depth of our loyalties to the kingdom of God. It becomes very convenient and safe to operate under the dictates of the kingdom that's right in front of us in this earth. And to ignore the fact that we are ambassadors here for Christ under the influence of another homeland and another Lord. We saw this clash developing in the book of Acts. In the first two chapters, everything is going so well. But as we come to chapter 3, there's the healing of this man who's lame from birth. And in chapter 4, great opposition from the kingdom of man. There's the arrest and the interrogation of Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, the most powerful court in Israel. They bring these two untrained men before this great and austere assembly of some 71 of the most powerful men in Jerusalem. And what is the conclusion of this meeting? The kingdom of man, the kingdom of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent, rage against these followers of Christ and say, chapter 4 and verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, remember this comment, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they, the Sanhedrin, had further threatened them, the apostles, they, the Sanhedrin, let the apostles go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened in the healing of this man. How do the disciples filter this? This is crucial as we move into chapter 5. How do they take this opposition? How do they read it? Verse 25, they see it as flowing with the directives of Scripture and the prophetic mouth of David, the King of God. And by the Holy Spirit, he says, verse 25, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. This was happening in David's day and it's happening now. There's a raging of the offspring of the serpent against the people of God. The kingdoms are clashing. This is simply part of all that has taken place throughout salvation history, and it's taking place now in our experience. We understand this. They see themselves in the midst of this conflict. And what do they do? Verse 33 of chapter 4, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Don't talk about this man ever again. Don't spread the message of his name. They kept spreading it. They were listening to the word from another kingdom. We come to chapter 5 and we learn that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, evidencing a supernatural realm influencing this present realm. They were all together in Solomon's porch. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Remember this repulsion out of fear, but yet respect for the new believers Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. His influence is so great. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. 
What we are going to witness now at verse 17 and following is an intensification of the resistance against these new believers. We have the kingdom of man represented here by the Sadducees clashing with the kingdom of God represented here by the apostles. But the high priest rose up in light of all that's going on here, these miracles, the teaching. He rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Remember, the Sadducees, the most powerful party in Israeli politics, controlled the temple, collaborated with the Roman authorities. This is their turf. These powerful men are filled with jealousy as they look around and see the people's response to the apostles' teaching and to these miracles that are taking place. They don't like this. So they incarcerate the apostles in a public prison in that way saying... Be warned, Christianity is not going to pass here in Jerusalem. And also it is a way of humbling, humiliating these individuals. We have a different take on such things today. Someone's a hero when they're thrown in prison unjustly. But in this day, anybody that ends up in prison, it's a shame. It's humbling. So they publicly humble the apostles and put them in prison. Now watch this. The kingdom of man has acted decisively, hasn't it? You're not going to teach in his name anymore, and we're going to put you in prison. Watch what happens next. There's another kingdom. Verse 19. But during the night, underline the word but, it's a huge contrast. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, what do you think they did? They entered the temple at daybreak and began to speak the words of that life, to teach there in the temple. Now what is happening is that the supernatural realm has invaded the natural realm. Although the Sadducees, and here's God's humor, there's great irony in this, they don't believe in angels. But they put these men in the prison and an angel delivers them in the middle of the night. They refuse to believe in angels, but the angel springs the apostles. And what the Sadducees did then the angel undoes he overrules his human counterparts now for those that are skeptical i would say i don't believe angels spring people from prison very often this is a miraculous event a supernatural event it is very unique it's not something that's happening every day But these Sadducees, not believing in this angelic realm, are stunned. The apostles are right back to teaching in the temple courts. The Sadducees are yet to learn this. But as the dawn streaks the eastern sky, they align themselves with the agenda of the realm that they serve. These apostles. The middle of verse 21 continues. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. You can see them there, the Sanhedrin, these powerful men, austere, clothed in majestic robes, seated, waiting for the ragtag apostles to be brought from prison and really getting ready to let them have it. And tell them what they think about all this. The officers return with no prisoners in hand. But they have quite a story to tell. Verse 22. When the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked. 
and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. See these burly guards of the Levitical order. They unlock the prison doors, flinging them open, and they stand there stunned. Their mouths open, their eyes wide, they're gone. What on earth has happened here? We haven't left. We've stood guard and they are not here. There's no explanation. None in this realm, anyway. And while the officers scurry off to inform the Sanhedrin, the apostles are doing what? They're preaching in the temple courts. The prison's locked. But they are out in teaching. Verse 24, Now when the captain of the temple... And the chief priests heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. So the Sanhedrin is buzzing. These 71 men, it's buzzing with bewildered conversation when somebody shows up, verse 25, came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. This rearrest, let's consider under a number of lines. The apostles are doing precisely what the angel told them to do in verse 20. Go to the temple, stand there, and teach. They've gone to the temple, they've taken their stand, and they're teaching. They've done exactly what the kingdom of God has directed them to do. They are doing, secondly, precisely what the Sanhedrin has said not to do. So in defiance of the earthly powers under which they live, they are honoring the heavenly powers which has commissioned them to speak for God in the temple. Now thinking on this re-arrest, we notice first that the apostles go willingly. I think that says something. And, you know, on one level, they're kind of saying, like, like we're really worried about this. Go ahead and arrest us again. You know, they know that they're safe in God. He just delivered them from the prison. But they go willingly. They will share the gospel of Christ wherever they're brought. They don't resist. They don't fight. They go willingly. Secondly, Another sideline here with this re-arrest is that we notice again the people who revere the apostles, as is indicated in 5.13. They didn't necessarily want to join them. They were afraid of the whole situation a bit, but they revered them. There are times in the history of persecution when the kingdoms clash, when the common masses turn against believers in Christ. We're watching this, aren't we, in the state of Arissa in India as there are Hindu thugs that are going in groups with their orange headbands and sticks and other things and going into cities and into villages and they are hunting down Christians. This is happening right now. We're watching that. We see that. But I want you to know that's very rare. In the first few centuries of the church, there were periodic occasions where persecution was of that sort. The common masses rising up and seeking to destroy Christians. But that was rare. What is far more common is what we see here. Average people supporting Christians against corrupt officials. Most of the persecution in this world is done by corrupt officials. And it says something to us here, I think. Now, understanding, there's miracles being worked and people very impressed by that. Probably many of them not impressed for the right reasons, but they have, they have reasons for uh, accepting and promoting the Christians. But let's remember, too, that many times that's where Christianity finds its protection. 
ultimately in God who can deliver people from prison if he wants, but many times in the common people. And it says something, I think, about how we should relate to the lost in our own community. Never backing down from the gospel, speaking the truth, but always doing so graciously and honorably in such a way that wins the respect of the people of this community. May God help us to that end. They find protection in the people just as Jesus did. Now, the people aren't solid. They can be very fickle. They can turn on you at any time. But what we have here is reverence from the masses, opposition from the leadership. Very common in church history. A third point, wouldn't you think, on this rearrest, wouldn't you think these guys would get the point about now that they're on the wrong side? You put these guys in prison, and God brings them out supernaturally. An angel releases the apostles miraculously from their capture, and you want to do what? Recapture them. Take them back into custody. But then again, we remember that these are some of the same guys who tried to kill Lazarus after Jesus raised him. So they're kind of used to this insanity. They're going to go and recapture them again. But it just speaks of the lostness of their mind, how they are against the kingdom of God. They don't even see the kingdom of God. They believe they're just resisting people. They don't understand that they are fighting against the purposes of God. So they rearrest them and they bring them, verse 27, When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Two objections. First, you've disobeyed our command to speak in this man's name. Notice they don't even use Jesus' name. It's this man. They're trying to run from him. In fact, it's something that Jews continue to do to this day. They don't like to speak the name of Jesus. These skirt that point as they speak to these other Jews about who have embraced Messiah. For his part, Peter told them this is what the apostles would do. It's not like this is anything new, right? We told you not to speak in his name. Go back to chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, and we realize that Peter told them he was going to keep speaking in Jesus' name. They really don't have any options here. Indeed, in answer to their prayer in 429, the disciples had filled Jerusalem with their teaching. So, you have not listened to us. Indeed, they haven't. Secondly, you intend to hold us responsible for the death of Jesus. Well, no kidding. They're the ones who put him to death. But isn't that interesting? How quickly they have forgotten Matthew chapter 27, where they said, His blood be on our heads. And here now they're saying, You're trying to put his blood on our heads. What's wrong with you? Well, Peter doesn't back down from this. I don't believe that there's anything in Peter here that's disrespectful, that's dishonorable. But the angel said, Peter... Apostles, you go stand in the temple and teach. Stand. And that's what he's doing here now. In the temple court somewhere in front of the Sanhedrin, he is standing and he's not going to back down. Notice what he says in verse 29. He and the other apostles, we must, Peter apparently the spokesman, 
We must obey God rather than men. That's not what they wanted to hear. They wanted an apology. We must obey God rather than men. What a bold statement which reflects a a philosophy. And probably the reason our communities are not filled with the gospel of Christ, as was Jerusalem at this time, putting all the miraculous aside and understanding that. One of the reasons is that we obey the expectation of man's kingdom rather than following the commission of our homeland. We really are in a responsive state to the expectations of the lost around us. I am. I struggle with this. I had opportunity yesterday in a passing um, with uh, someone that uh, figured out who I was in this community. And you just think in those terms. There's sort of an expectation of what you're supposed to say here and what you're not supposed to say here. It's hard, isn't it, to remember I'm the citizen of another kingdom. I serve Christ. I don't fall within the guidelines of what is expected here. But I speak the truth for Christ. It says to us that wagon-circling churches that spend all their time minding their own business are in serious trouble. And we're all pre-programmed that way. We like to mind our own business. And there's a world out there that's real happy that we're in this room today. They don't mind. As long as we stay behind closed doors and don't make a lot of noise, they're fine with whatever we want to talk about here as long as it doesn't affect them. Peter says to these men, I mean, if we could just picture what it meant to have a Galilean fisherman stand here in front of the Sanhedrin, semi-circled around him in all of their robes, and say, we're going to obey God, not you. It's amazing. And so it should be the goal that we have as a church to fill our communities with the message of salvation in Christ as they did They did not have internet and they did not have speaker systems and they did not have media to use. They simply proclaimed the gospel one person at a time. Yes, the apostles are speaking to crowds and obviously there's healing that's involved here that's very unique. But they're simply out there proclaiming the gospel person to person and they filled Jerusalem with the message. And so before this intimidating body, The apostles disappoint and disobey this body because they have a sort of diplomatic immunity. We are operating under the laws of another kingdom. We are alien citizens here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We serve the kingdom of Christ. We will obey God. And what is the reality that drives them? You say, boy, I'd like a piece of that. If we could sell it and market it in a business environment, people would be standing in line to get that kind of courage. That stand up in front, not being uh, harsh and mean-spirited, but willing to stand and to speak the truth. How do you get that kind of courage? What is it that drives them to speak this way? The reality is found in verses 30 through 32. The reality that is driving them. Peter says the God of our fathers raised Jesus. Whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. What is that other kingdom? What is its message? What is it that drives these apostles to stand for Christ? It's this simple message. You killed him. God raised him. We are witnesses. That's the reality of our world. You're all worried that this man's name is going to take away your power. You should realize this this man is your opportunity for reconciliation with God. He will forgive you. Now, where does this put them? Under the law of God. They're murderers. And yet here is God reaching out to these murderers and saying, I will forgive This is the message. It's a message of forgiveness. It's a message of Christ and who He is. It comes with its offense as people realize that it is their sin that led Christ to be crucified. Nonetheless, it is a message of hope. It is a message of Christ. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins is available. Perhaps you've been with us over the last few weeks and have heard this gospel message repeated through the book of Acts. Maybe you join us just uniquely here today. But let me say as well as I know how to say this is at the heart and the core, not only of God's kingdom, not only of man's kingdom, but if we could say it of the very core of all that is. This is the essence of of the message that God sends to us. Jesus died to in the sinner's place to pay the penalty of our sin. He rose from the dead to give us power over the wages of sin, which is death. Jesus lives today. He has risen from the grave. And the apostles were willing to bank everything on that. If Jesus hasn't risen, close up your books, go home, and live however you please. But He lives. God has defeated death in Christ. And it points to the fact that that death was substitutionary. Taking our place and paying the penalty of our sin. Trust Him. Turn to Him, repent of sin, and embrace Christ as Savior. This is the clash of these two kingdoms. We move then in the narrative to a second line, a second consideration, and that is the voice of Gamaliel that clashes with the intentions of the Sadducees. We have a voice of a Pharisee clashing with that of the Sadducees at verse 33. So we have the clash of these two kingdoms, and now a clash within Two human kingdoms, so to speak. Two parties in Israel. We won't read it any, anything into this, but kind of think something like Republicans and Democrats multiplied by about ten times. That's what we've got going in the Sanhedrin. Sadducees and Pharisees. And when, verse 33, they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Them here is probably the Sadducees. They want to kill them right now for what they said. They have defied us on our turf, in our temple. They're dead men. But, verse 34, we have another but, as God intervenes again, but a Pharisee 
In the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Now they'd heard this message before. What the, this Sanhedrin, but what they saw this now is absolute defiance. As one has put it, intolerable obstinacy. But a Pharisee who's a bit more gentle, stands up and says, let's put these men out. Now let me just stop briefly, because we've got to think of it. Um, The Pharisees are a minority party represented in the Sanhedrin. They are less powerful than the Sadducees. Jesus had most of his run-ins with the Pharisees because most of his ministry was outside of Jerusalem. So we think of the Pharisees as really bad people, but let's think of it in this way, and they were, as Jesus exposed them. But if you had to pick a neighbor, and it was going to be a Pharisee or a Sadducee, if you knew these guys, every one of us would want to have our neighbor as a Pharisee. The Pharisees were Bible-loving people. They were religious people. They were far more gracious. The Sadducees had long ago cared about what anybody thought about them. They were mean-spirited, ugly dudes, and everybody knew it. Nobody liked the Pharisees except the Pharisees, and they didn't really care because they were in their palaces enjoying the wealth and the luxury of their power. The Pharisees were people people. They were in the synagogues among the people, and they were teaching them the Word of God, and and, and you would have liked the Pharisees a lot better. Now, the people didn't see through the mask of their hypocrisy, and that's what Jesus was constantly pulling down. But when it came to the two, you wanted the Pharisee to be your neighbor. And I think probably every one of us has a Pharisee and a Sadducee as our neighbor. We kind of maybe can fill in the blanks there, but it, it's the way it was. More gracious, more accommodating, more online with what the apostles believe as far as resurrection. Now think of this. The Sadducees, there is no resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees, yes, there is. And here comes these apostles standing up and speaking of the resurrection of Jesus and of angels. Maybe the message has been declared here, have delivered them from prison. Pharisees are a lot warmer to that whole concept. Now, Gamaliel, real quickly, highly revered and respected man, a pious man. From all that we know, he was a man who had an unusual measure of common grace. His voice carries great weight. And so when he says, put these men out, people listen, they put them out. He is not the most politically powerful man in the Sanhedrin, But because of the respect that he has gained, he speaks with some authority. As no friend of the Sadducees, he says, verse 35, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. You remember that. Remember, they all know about this. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. Remember that guy? Remember how ticked we all were about the census and the whole taxation thing with Rome? You remember this guy? What happened? He perished, and all who followed him were scattered. 
You remember these things. And so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Not that that ever bothered the Sadducees a whole lot, but there's a point there to be made. So Gamaliel reminds the Sanhedrin here of two among a host of rebels who had led insurgencies under Roman rule. And he says, obviously, what's clear, remember these men, it all came to nothing. Their followers melted away when they died. So what is the point? It's a call for patience, verses 38 and 39. I don't think that Gamaliel is saying that any sect, religion, or cult that finds numerical success is from God. If we apply his comments that way, I think we'll really be misguided here and even really confused as to what he's saying. But the point is that only that which God blesses endures and commends itself to godly people as serving kingdom purposes. Maybe these guys are serving the kingdom of God. The Greek text even indicates that Gamaliel was oriented to think this was a movement of God, a movement under his blessing, and that it might endure. There's two conditional clauses that are here, and that might be the indication that he's sort of leaning that way, that, listen, gentlemen, there's a lot going on here with these people. Maybe we're going to be opposing God. Now, there's no indication historically that Gamaliel ever came to trust Christ as his Savior. But what we're dealing with here is a man saying, Gentlemen, we might be in the situation here of trying to stop a speeding locomotive with our chests. Let's be careful. We may be opposing God. And his wisdom saves the day for the apostles. Was his speech politically motivated? I would assume that it probably was. He's probably enjoying getting a point in on the Sadducees. Was it sincere? I would assume that it probably was. What we know of the man, he probably did have under common grace some sense that he didn't want to stand in God's way. Very pious, very confused undoubtedly. But what I think we're seeing here is common grace operating where God gives a man who is separated from him spiritually wisdom. That is, Gamaliel can see within the way that the world is constructed, within nature, he can understand and perceive what makes sense here and what doesn't. That common grace is wedded to the providence of God that there are two sects in the Sanhedrin that are fighting against one another. And the outcome is the apostles are given freedom and safety for a little bit longer. The middle of verse 39. So they took his advice. Now watch, here's how a Sadducee takes the advice to not mess with God's people. Verse 40, And when they had called them in, in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now what are they responding to? Gamaliel's speech or his reputation? They're clearly responding to his reputation. They really can't get around that. They're not listening to his speech at all, or they might have just beaten people that are God's people, which is in fact what they've done. But what is more amazing is that in their fury, and by the way, let me say, this beating, this whipping, don't take as something light. It's not a slap on the hand. 
probably within the context of what they were permitted, it was 39 lashes with a three-strand cord that would have ripped flesh off of their backs and perhaps their chest, depending on how it was administered. These men were hurting. This was a cruel beating. And they are sent off with their backs shredded and the intimidating words of the Sanhedrin ringing in their ears, don't ever talk about this man again. What we read next is otherworldly. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. As Stott puts it, the honor to be dishonored and the grace to be disgraced. And every day, verse 42, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And you don't do this kind of thing unless you are living under the influence of God's kingdom or unless you're insane. And there are many who would say that that's exactly what they are. They're delusional, all of these Christians. But what they are claiming is Jesus Christ has risen and we will suffer anything to continue proclaiming his name. Their backs bloodied with lashes, their ears ringing with rebuke. They go right back to preaching. There had been a gruesome clash of kingdoms here. They served in the supernatural realm. And they ran up against those who were serving in the natural realm. But the apostles continued for heeding the dictates of the kingdom of God. Tertullian put it this way during a time of persecution in the ancient church. He said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The blood of these you martyr is the seed of the church. What a challenge there is for us as the followers of Christ. If we're going to do anything more than pretend, we don't have a Sanhedrin opposing us. Under the laws of the land in which we live, there is fair freedom to proclaim the cause of Christ. But we need, under the influence of this example, to live under the influence and power of the kingdom of God. We need to be driven to act and think and emote under the influence of the larger agenda of Jesus Christ and His kingdom. We are ambassadors of that kingdom and we are called to live like it here. And there's tremendous temptation, isn't there? There's the temptation to serve my kingdom. There's the temptation to capitulate to the expectation of the world's kingdom. To mind our own business and circle our wagons. Listen, Christian, this will never do. And if that is how we live, just minding our kingdom and submitting to the kingdom of man, it is questionable whether or not we really understand Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And whether or not we really serve His kingdom. Because Jesus is reigning. He is reigning today from heaven's throne. Jesus is winning souls to Christ The gates of hell are not prevailing against the gospel in this world. And there is a great calling then upon our lives to be followers who are willing to proclaim His name 
so that his agenda is carried forward and to live in this life under that influence. Oh, the temptations are many, aren't they? There is fear. What must we do but repent and turn and see our lives lived out under the influence of Christ? We find here certainly inspiration from these apostles. As it reads in chapter 5 and verse 42, that in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. But ultimately, we see here in their example a reflection of our Savior who said, I always do those things that please my Father. I live at all times under the influence and the direction of God and His kingdom. He said at the end of His life, Not my will, but yours be done. He said at the end of his life, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. We find in Jesus the pattern of living under the directives and the power of the kingdom of God. Living out his life many times, pleasing people and comforting people and honoring people that he's around and living out his life many other times, opposing the kingdom of man and the raging powers of the offspring of the serpent. We don't dictate the terms. We don't set up the circumstances. What we should strive to do is to live under the influence of the kingdom of God as we throw ourselves in dependence upon his mercies, to live under that influence as these believers did in chapter 4 and verse 29, praying in the face of threats that God would grant to his servants to continue speaking the word with all boldness. And that is what God has done for these. And may he do it for us. We would respond and we would first pray And seek that God would help us to live under the directives of the kingdom of God. And that we would have courage as we face the directives of the kingdom of man. For his glory and honor. Let's pray. Our Father, we come into your presence with thanksgiving. We pray, Father, that you would help us to respond to what we have seen. Not in our own strength, but to know that the influence of Jesus Christ is poured out toward us. I pray that we'd lift up our prayers on a daily basis, plead with you to be the representatives that we should be, to plead with you to pour out your power upon us that we might pour out your power upon a lost and dying world, that they would see the importance of Christ crucified and risen. God, I pray in your mercies that you would help us and aid us to this end. As a church, and Lord, there may be someone here who does not know Christ as Savior, and I pray that they would see him for who he is. Not play the part of the Pharisee who is hypocritical, striving for self-righteous commendation before God. Not playing the part of the Sadducee in rebellion outright against him. But I pray that we would humble ourselves, that there would be repentance and a turning to Christ as Savior. Father, we pray that you'll work to that end in our hearts. Humble us and change us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.